Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Planet Positive. I'm Julian Guderlei. This is our virtual gathering, and this week we feature Barbara Randall. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you. And Lovely. a bit more about Planet Positive. Usually we host, you know, a global as a global think tank and venture capital advisory, um, we host opportunities for investment and opportunities for making the planet a better place. And this week we've decided to feature an Earth Wisdom and Earth Culture uh, session, um, you know, committed to planetary progress, but really highlighting the wisdom and the wealth of knowledge that comes from the indigenous cultures. And so our guest is Barbara Randall, as I just said. She was born and raised in Connecticut in the US, but now lives in Australia. And in 2008, I believe, uh, Barbara, you traveled for the first time to Australia on a one-year tourist visa. And when you arrived there, um, she met an, an Aboriginal elder and found herself living in an Aboriginal community within no time right beside Uluru. And her husband, affectionately known as Uncle Bob Randall, was a traditional custodian of Uluru, which is the large red rock monolith in the central desert of Australia. And so in 2013, you know, years into their journey together, Uncle Bob set up an educational charity before he passed away in 2015. And concerned with the global environment, he passed on this uh, message or this, this mission to Barbara, which is to get the teachings out into the world. And so I'm, I'm really, um, I feel honored to have you here with us today. Thank you and welcome, Barbara. We're excited to hear your story. Thank you, Julian. It's, um, it, it really is, I absolutely love people, meeting people from around the world. I think technology is phenomenal when it's used in a good way. And, and this is definitely a good way. Um, it's a big story. I could, uh, I, I've been asked to tell it many times because it's, it's, uh, because it is a big story. And my husband especially loved it when I told the story of how we met and how things came to be. It's probably significant because of what it represents um, in terms of life having its way with us and all of us being born for some purpose, you know, some destiny, some some way that we're meant to express our gifts. And we don't always know what that looks like, even though we try to plan it. And so my story is certainly one of those. Um, before I came to Australia, I was living in Cincinnati, Ohio. And um, I'll, I'll tell you the, the briefest version of, of a little bit of background so you get a sense of, of how I came to be here. Um, I was married to a pathologist in Cincinnati. I lived a very kind of, I don't, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, privileged life in some ways. And, um, but uh, there was another plan for me that I wasn't aware of. And like many people, I was very interested in, in uh, living life in quality and I, I'd had many experiences that were disappointing, shall we say, uh, with what, with the state of humanity, with the state of the world, with with just uh, everyday experiences of things not being ideal, not ideal in the sense that where was the kindness, where was the love, was my big question. Where's the love? And so uh, I decided, I, I kind of took a personal vow that I would only contribute to that which was of love and truth. And that was my, that was my state of being. And 
uh, I ended up having a, a very unexpected divorce. My daughter asked me to come and be a grandmother when her second child was born. She was living in Perth, Australia at the time. She had studied abroad in university and that was the link that was set up many, many years before I came. And so I got a one-year visa. I arrived in Perth, but the year before I came, I was here for my first grandchild's first birthday. And the day before I left in a five-week visit, I was woken up by a voice and I was told, go to the didgeridoo breath shop. You're gonna meet someone there to collaborate with in, in my work. So I went and I did meet a man who wanted to collaborate. I went back to the States. I immediately lost my job. And, but I stayed in touch with the Didge player and he ended up telling me about a film called Kanyini. It was my husband's film, my not yet to be husband. And when I watched the film, I was so blown away because in the man and in the entire culture, there was the love. I saw it, I felt it, I, it was, and I, couldn't believe that I had actually been to as a tourist to Australia and I couldn't believe that I'd been here so many times and I never knew anything about the exquisite sophisticated beauty of the culture and a, a whole way of being that that was possible in humanity that I hadn't seen in the world and so I picked up the phone and I rang the producer and I asked her to please bring this film to the West. The Westerners need this film. And when she uh, didn't want to do it because of the cost involved, I said, well, I can't know what I know and do nothing. So I'm going to show this film to everyone I know. So in the year before I went to Australia, a year and a half actually, I showed that film to hundreds of times to groups, I bought a projector and speakers. I, I carried it with me everywhere I went and showed it on my laptop because it was a, a different DVD format. And then I ended up going to Perth and two months after I arrived, my husband came to that town to give a workshop and the Didge player told me about it. So I signed up. Now I wasn't necessarily, I wasn't a groupie, I wasn't necessarily interested in meeting him, but it was a destiny. And what happened was he walked over to where I was sitting. He refused to take his hands out of his pockets when he was offered crystals to, to hold and feel the energy. And he said to the Didge player that I was sitting with, I have to touch another crystal. And then he made a little signal, which is classic in Aboriginal culture to not use verbal, but to use body language. And he just did this. And he called me over to him. So I got up from the table and I walked over to him and he gave me a big hug and he burst into tears. And he said to me, I've been waiting for you. And then he sat me down. He said, there's something very important I have to tell you. And he's got tears streaming down his face. 
as he's as he's talking and he's smiling and he says when i held you granny came and in my culture granny's law is highest law you never question the grannies now the grannies means the elders so the spirits of his mother his grandmother and his wife who had died all appeared to him and he said it was as if they said traveled the world and here she is and so that was the very beginning and then what happened was his girlfriend arrived at the workshop i didn't think anything of it he had asked me to please come to all of his events his girlfriend arrived and he said um he, 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 his phone rang when she arrived and uh, he announced to the group that she had to turn around and get on a plane to go to Melbourne, that her daughter had gone into premature labor. So I found out later that this is absolutely in keeping with traditional beliefs, which is that everything's organized from spirit world by the babies. So a baby brought me to Perth and another baby cleared the way. And that was November 25th, 2008. And in January, he proposed to me. And I said, yes. And that was another kind of magical story that I won't go into, but quite an extraordinary story of what happened as well. And then our first, uh, outing as a as a couple was straight to Parliament House for a private invitation for the first anniversary of what they call Sorry Day, which is a political gesture to make an attempt for uh, for public display to apologize for stealing the half caste Aboriginal children, and Bob was one of those children as a child. So. That was the beginning of an incredible journey. I, we lived together in an Aboriginal community right beside Uluru, where, which is a, a very um, significant global sacred site. And my husband is, a, is what's called a traditional custodian of Uluru. And there began a journey that has brought me here today. So he was probably, he, we don't know how old he was because he was born in the bush uh, in a time, in a culture that didn't keep calendars. Um, they actually had no numbers. And so they, they'd have the number for something, for a few and for many, but they didn't use numbers. And, um, and they didn't keep calendars. So we don't know how old he was, but I imagine he was somewhere in his 80s when he died in 2015. And when he was dying, um, we flew home to Uluru so that he could die on his own homeland, which is very important culturally. And he turned to me before he uh, lost consciousness. And he said to me, it's gonna be up to you to get these teachings out to the world. And so here I am, um, very devoted, not just because he's my husband, but because I know and I 
understand and I deeply believe that these are the teachings that humanity actually has a right to. These are the teachings that have been blocked by uh, political interests, by economic interests. And living in an Aboriginal community, I actually was in the direct line of fire of some of that opposition that prevented Indigenous wisdom from being shared. They actually prevented my husband from, from easily sharing his teachings. And so I'm not so easily swayed and, um, and this is my devotion now. And so if I can speak a little bit to the meaning of that and to what I've learned in the process, um, I, I'm, I'm happy and honored to do that with all of you. Yeah, thank you, Barbara, for sharing first kind of how, how, you, know, how you got to meet Bob and then how, how that all unfolded, but we'd love to hear more. And obviously, if there are questions, everyone can leave them in the chat and we, we can address them um, step by step as well. But, but please, please, uh, the floor is yours. So take it away and, and guide us into the deeper levels of, of wisdom and, and maybe for some of us, unconventional parts of reality. Well, it's definitely a different world uh, living, stepping, it, stepping into an Aboriginal culture, a traditional Aboriginal culture at Mutajula community. Uh, most of the people there didn't speak English or if they did, it was very, very limited. And so I had the great privilege and learning experience of being a, a, a minority in the sense that, um, I was from a different culture, you know, I was born and bred as a, as a contemporary Western woman and, um, and, and there was a different language and it was almost like stepping back in time because the culture is so different and the, and the differences I've come to understand are grossly misunderstood. There's lack of understanding, there's misunderstanding. And if anything, when I think about my role, I almost feel like I have the capacity to be a translator because I understand what Aboriginal people don't understand about us in, in the world that we live in. And I also have a sense of what we don't understand about traditional ways and how we miss the opportunity to understand the relevance of, of teachings, of wisdom teachings that are timeless, that really are, should, we should have access to, and so should our children. And these wisdom teachings, from what I can see, inform every possible role that we have in the world as just being human including, I, I understand that this is a group of, of people who are um, into investment, whatever that means, because that's not my world. But when I think about investment, I think about the discerning use of resources. And if anything, this culture is that and has been that for tens of thousands of years since the beginning of time. And so if I can help to bridge that understanding, 
of how to take that wisdom and apply it such that it has meaning for each and every one of us, then I think that uh, that's, that's probably my work right there. Um, and I do see the, the meaning and the relevance, and yet it's such a, uh, an in-depth um, story, teaching, that it's almost, where do you start? So I'm actually going to start with a story. I want to start with what's called a dreaming story or a creation story, which in this culture is called a jukurpa story. The word dreaming is a bit of a misnomer. It's, it's a word that was applied by the anthropologists that we latch onto because it's easier to relate to than jukurpa. But it's anything but a dream. The, the word, the dreaming or the jukurpa is actually like saying the super consciousness of creation that is timeless. That's what it is. It's like some people would use the word God for that or creator or something like that. But jukurpa is that energy of the super consciousness of creation that is beyond what we can control or manage or measure or fully understand, but it's in everything. It's in all nature and all creation. It's in each one of us. And this is a story of the beginning of time, the beginning of creation, the beginning of Jukurpa. And I'll do a kind of an abbreviated version for, for time's sake. But a very, very long, long time ago in the time before anything was, in the time before time, everything was in complete blackness. There was nothing, nothing existed, nothing was. And then out of this blackness, out of this nothingness, there awakened an idea. And when this idea awakened, it caused a vibration, a very soft, subtle vibration in the middle of this blackness. Now out there, and we're gonna talk about the area of the universe that we're familiar with, out there were these spiritual entities that had no form, but they existed as spiritual entities and they were the stars and the planets. And among them was the galaxy that we're familiar with, which includes the two sisters, Mother Sun and Mother Earth and Father Moon. And as this awakening happened, they too began to awaken. And almost in unison, all of these spiritual entities headed in toward this point, this place of awakening. And out of this Awakening with the vibration was a very low, soft sound, like the drone of the didgeridoo. And so magnetically, they were all attracted to this and they moved in toward this awakening until they formed a circle around it. And for the first time, as a soft light also awoken, 
they they too began to awaken and they started to take a manifest form and they could see each other for the first time and so all of a sudden out of this central point came a voice and it was like a thought and it said we're all here for a purpose and everyone's looking around and they're saying well what could that be and then the voice came again each of us must choose the position where we will be of the greatest service to all that will be, not knowing what will be. And so they look around and as everything is starting to awaken in deepen into the awakening, awakening, mother son is getting really excited and she's growing brighter and brighter. And so they all say, well, we're gonna need a marker Maybe it could be you. And so mother's son chose the position that she's in and each one of the stars and the planets and the moon chose the position that they are in where they believed that they could be of the greatest service to all that will be. Now the moon is the male model in this culture. And so he, he believed he, in order for him to meet his purpose of what he believed, he loved both of the, the mothers equally. So he decided he'd spend two weeks with one and two weeks with the other equal time. And so in that model, there is a template for men and women. The two sisters, mother earth and mother son, all life comes through them and is nurtured by them. And the role of the moon as the male model is to protect and to provide for whatever the children need and for whatever the women say the children need. And he also controls all the waters, all the fluids, which is part of the sacred movement of creation. Because without that, without that magnetic pull, that that's, that is what's necessary for the cycle of life, both within the woman and within all of, all of nature. And so in this creation story, we're given not only the purpose of life, but we're also given the understanding that this energy of the superconsciousness is in all of nature and exists in our natural world. And that it's up to each one of us to choose the position where we feel we can be of the greatest service to all that will be. Now, in that, there, there is a, a way of raising children in Aboriginal way that gives every child a sense of responsibility. So children have a birthright to belonging, which is connection, to feeling a part of something, to love, and to responsibility. And these are the teachings, the three teachings that continue throughout life, is that we all have that birthright to belong, to love and be loved, and also to apply our free will with self-responsibility. 
And that is what is inherent in this creation story. It is the sense of that community of all beings that all belong to each other and all belong to life itself that inherent within is light vibration and sound that animates and is the representation of this energy of a super consciousness that exists in all things in the grasshopper the same as in us in the tree in the water in the air in everything the same as in us and it's in this in this connectedness that we all have this biodiversity that is meant to be kept in balance because in the natural way it is in balance but then we have our free will that we have to take responsibility for in every thought word and action and so it's in the choices in every moment of every thought every word every action that we apply our responsibility to all that there is and we choose the position where we can be of service and that balance that sacred balance that is the natural way of homeostasis in nature is dependent on each of us doing our part and fitting into what's already there because everything that's there is created in a perfect state and for some reason we've evolved as humans believing that we're not perfect enough and that we have to do these certain things in order to to feel satisfied with that perfection and so one of the bases baselines of aboriginal understanding and raising children is that each one of us can know that we are and have in our essence that energy of the super consciousness of creation we are that just as everything in nature is that and when we begin to see that within ourselves we, that's the beginning state where we can begin to see it in all creation and it is our birthright it's the birthright of all humanity to know that sacredness of creation and then from that to use our unique gifts so that's basically the um <laughs> that, that's a big story that's a really big story. And I, I want to invite anybody, if you have any questions or any comments, to jump in. I'm happy to field those because this is a lot that I'm kind of throwing at you at once. I went right into the to the heart of it. Right, right off the deep end. That's that's the good way. Thank you, Barbara, so much. And yeah, just make sure to unmute yourself. Um, feel free to um, step in and 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 just just ask a question. I see Brandon you're asking about if the film is digitized yep hey hey barbara thank you so much for sharing the story i i you know felt very uh emotional about it because having spent time actually with aborigines down in australia when i was 15 years old i had the opportunity to study abroad and this synchronous organism almost right 
a chance to play these didgeridoos and all of what you're we're talking about. So I had a very close connection with that, which was really amazing for me. Um, my question is, in regards to the film, you said that you had it kind of person personally on a DVD format. Have you digitized it and been able to share that through any mediums or formats? The the film is on Vimeo and it's also being sold. So um, th there was a uh, uh, there there were politics involved in the making of the film, and so I don't have any. Uh, any recognized, shall we say, I, I do have film rights, but they're not recognized. Um, but it's available, it's on Vimeo, it's called Kanyini, K-A-N-Y-I-N-I. And that word um, is a, a word from the desert and it means to care for. Now, this is an example of why language is so absolutely uh, uh, misunderstood and underappreciated. That word in, in traditional culture has a whole gestalt of meaning that goes with it. And that meaning is learned and, and passed down from the beginning of time. And, and yet, it's translated into English by saying to care for, to keep, to hold, and that's it. But the deep meaning of that word, according to my husband, and that's his language, is to care for to the level of having unconditional love with responsibility from self. So do you see the depth of the meaning behind the word? It is the essence of the Jukrapa story. Now we live in a culture that has maybe reinterpreted uh, the meaning of to care for and the agenda behind it. Because we all often look at what we can get out of life. And in this word, it's not only what you can get, it's particularly what you can give because that word is completely tied in with something called boomerang law. And boomerang law, of course, is that whatever we put out comes back. Sure, yeah, it reminds me of the African word Ubuntu. Are you familiar with that? Yes, I am. So I am, yeah. I am because you are. Right, so yeah. that's one of the. Yeah, I, I apologize for it. Just it was fascinating because yeah. you were talking about boomerang. So Ubuntu is is kind of like the tribal, and it's funny because when you say tribal these days, it's like it has such a connotation to it in in Western society. But Ubuntu, from my understanding of it, was really like that tribalist mentality of of uh, pack mentality of you know all of us rising together and all of us benefiting from the singular source of individual. So it's fascinating to hear me hear you talk about this, right? Because it, it kind of blends in directly with kind of that feeling that they had and that expression, which you know translates poorly to English, but to them is very. I think the the word tribal is um, it almost leads us away from recognizing a way of being that actually is is intelligent 
it's intelligent and it's timeless. It has nothing to do with a specific tribal way. Um, there are peoples in the world, First Nations peoples who live closely to the earth who haven't forgotten some of these ways. And yet, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I hear these things, it wakes up something inside me that's already there. And I think, oh yeah, that's it. In the same way that I said, oh, there's the love. When I hear these wisdom teachings, they make so much sense. They're already in me. I already know the truth of them. But hearing them and being reminded and actually seeing that they are existing in action, in lived, they're alive. They're not in museums. They're not artifacts of some ancient culture. They don't, they're not circumscribed to some certain place in a, in a little village in remote Africa. They're actually human ways of being that we simply have not had access to that kind of learning and that kind of conditioning. And so really what it comes down to is, you know, the existential questions of the meaning of life, how do we fit into it? What do we see actually happening now on the planet? What's working, what's not working? And what do we wanna be part of when it comes to making it right? Being right with ourselves in terms of what we contribute to. Because we're all gonna, we're all gonna come to the end of our life and we're gonna end up in spirit world. And we're going to look back on this time and, and our own lives and we're going to say, now, what did I contribute to? Did I learn anything about the meaning of life? And did I actually experience joy? Did I experience happiness? Did I learn to love? The time to fall in love is now. We're supposed to fall in love with life. We're supposed to fall in love with each other. And instead, we, we get distracted on, in some of our conditioning, which is competitive or uh, striving for things or, or goals that have nothing to do with health, happiness of the whole system. Very often they have to do with something my husband called the mindness instead of the oursness. And when we cut ourselves off by that kind of focus in life of, of that individuality, then we miss out on all that connection, all that belonging, all that love. And that really is part of the human drive that we all have which is the drive to connect, the drive to belong, the drive to know love, to love and be loved. It's all there. And what trips us up is that we have another drive, which is the drive to create. And what we create, we do in every thought, every word, every action. There was a Cherokee grandmother that we spent some time with in North Carolina when we were in the States together, Bob and I. Grandmother Redleaf, she's passed now. But Grandmother Redleaf said to me that when we choose to do something, something's created. 
When we choose to not do something, something is created. But when we choose not to choose, nothing is created. So each one of us is, we're all creator beings. We have this within us and we're born with certain gifts, certain talents, certain, you know, this spark of life, this beauty of, of this energy of creation inside us. And the question is, you know, what do we create? And a lot of that is based on what we understand about the meaning of life and what we value. What do we value? So what do we contribute to? We contribute to what we value. And this is something that can change depending on what we're exposed to and how much we understand about life. Hmm. You're talking about what we value, Barbara. And for me, I'm, I'm looking out at the ocean as I'm also looking into the screen. And so what comes up for me is the sacred waters and living on the blue planet, right? Like the, the, the liquids that, you know, are essentially us as we're water carriers with 70 or 80% water in our bodies. And there's a question from Matt in the chat about the moon controlling all the waters and all the fluids necessary for the cycle of life and the sacred movement. And so would you be able to expand a little bit on that role of the moon controlling the waters in, in the um, original story that you shared earlier? Of course. Sorry, I, I, technology is not my, my first talent, so I forget the whole chat thing. <laughs> so thanks for pointing that out. You know, when we look at nature, we, a, a lot of uh, the teachings have to do with, um, or a lot of the intelligence of the culture, I'll say, has to do with the uh, understanding of what it means to be a man and the understanding of what it means to be a woman. It genders, the simple genders. And I realize that we're in a time now when a lot of those boundaries are, or that those clear, the clarity of that is blurred. And, and I'll, I'll just say, this is not, um, this is not about sexuality. It's actually, although that is included, certainly. Um, it's about what it means to be born into life and given a gender that has certain proclivities, certain strengths. Now, the, the, the classic uh, traditional understanding is that the role of the man is to protect and to provide for, and the role of the woman is to nurture and care for. And, and so in terms of that magnetic pull of the waters, when you think about it, Look at, look at David Attenborough's um, programs on nature and watch what happens in the dynamics between the male and the female for procreation. So we're meant to be creative beings. And one of that creative, one of the most important creative aspects of who we are is procreation. We make the babies, we do it together. And it's that without that attraction, there is none of that. So it's almost a, a pull, it's a magnetic pull, it's a seduction. You know, we use the word seduction, but it's all but it's an attraction. 
And it's almost always the male, the male bird who does the dance and fluffs up his feathers to show all of his colors. It's gotta be that. Now in the same way, the moon man also has this influence on the rhythms of the cycle, the rhythms of the movement of, of the fluids within the woman. And this is part of that dynamic of the sacred movement that is the responsibility of the male to spark that. So the male typically, if I can be so blunt, carries an energy of discharge. It's an output energy. Whereas the female is the receptive. And so this dynamic with father moon, mother sun, mother earth, the, the two women are there because it takes more than one women, woman to raise the children. The women are meant, we're meant to be sisters to each other. And women definitely need to learn that. And the male's role in influencing that the fluid movement within the woman's cycles is absolutely critical for the perpetuation of life. It's a dance. It's a beautiful rhythmic dance. Now, I also will say that while there, you mentioned Ubuntu, Brandon, and, and it's so beautiful that you did that because when my husband and I traveled, especially, but also when we were at Uluru, we, we met people, we had visitors from around the world almost every day of the year if we were home. And we met people from so many different cultures, including traditional people. And many of these teachings are absolutely the same. But there are many cultures that see the moon as feminine. And that's okay. It's, a, it's, it's just how it is. And I'll tell you a, a brief story of going to see mother, grandmother Redleaf in North Carolina, who had her um, student with her. So she was my husband's age in her 80s. And she was teaching and passing the knowledge down of the ceremonial knowledge because she was the last keeper of Cherokee knowledge for Eastern and Western Cherokee nations. She held all the ceremonies. So she's passing it down to this man, Clyde, who was a bit of a comedian and he had long white hair. He was, he was an elder himself, but she was teaching him and she brought us into her longhouse and Clyde stood up and he had this little tiny piece of paper and he said, oh, Uncle Bob, would it be all right if I asked you a few questions? And my husband said, of course. So he stood up and this little paper went all the way down to the floor in this little unfolding accordion. And so he's asking all these questions to compare Cherokee and my husband's traditional teachings. And when he got to the question of, is your moon masculine or feminine? And now before this, everything was the same. And Bob said, well, our moon is the masculine. And he said, ah, that's where we're different because in our culture, the moon is feminine. And grandmother stood up and she said, actually, when I was a child, the moon was masculine and they changed it 
Now, I don't know about you, but think about the significance of that. Who, who's they? Because I guarantee it wasn't the wisdom keepers. It wasn't the people who carried the knowledge from the beginning of time. Because one of the hallmarks of wisdom is that it is timeless. And my experience of this culture here is that it's very serious, the accuracy of this, this unbroken thread of knowledge-based wisdom doesn't change. It's the same story as it was at the beginning of the Jukarpa, the beginning of the dreaming, the given story from that beginning of time itself. They don't change it one bit, and it's so strictly held in that. And yet, this is what grandmother shared. So we have to be very careful in, in taking in this, these, this understanding now on the planet. And look, we've all had the experience of who on earth can we trust in this world? Who do we trust? Who's telling the truth without any self-serving agenda, but rather has our interest in, in at, their, at the forefront of what they're sharing, of the knowledge that they're sharing and that they have learned it in this unbroken thread of integrity? Who do we trust? And trust is a tricky one. Because you need, in order to trust, in order for me, in order for any of you to trust me, I there have to be three things, at least three things present. You have to know number one that I'm being authentic, that I am speaking from my authentic place, that I am not parroting somebody else's word, that I'm sharing what I know from my heart. You have to know that I have some knowledge. And that that knowledge is, is founded in, in a basis of knowledge, real knowledge, knowledge that's backed up, knowledge that's time-tested, real knowledge. And then the third thing is, in order for you to trust me, you have to believe that I actually care about you. Because if you believe that I only care about myself, why on earth would you trust me? Because what am I actually serving? What am I actually giving? And so you see, this is where it becomes tricky because we have many people who present themselves as representing a culture, but might not have learned from the beginning of time might not have learned from a traditional wisdom keeper that isn't invested in anything but the wholeness of life. Those people still exist on this planet. And when you meet them, when we meet them and we hear them speak or we sit in their presence, that is when we get to use all of our sensory skills and really feel their heart. And there's such a good feeling that comes. That's the feeling that I had when I saw that 
Panini film and I listened to my husband. It was, my God, there's the love. And love and trust are two sides of the same coin. Mm. Because love and truth are two sides of the same coin. Did I answer the question about the moon? <laughs> I think you went there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for elaborating on it all the way to love and trust and truth. Um, Peter, the founder of Planet Positive, I know you have a question. I'll pass it to you, Peter. Yes, thank you so much, uh, Julian. And Barbara, your words have been deeply touching to me. And um, I actually, I'm leaving my video off because I'm in tears and I have shame around crying. Speaking of the flowing of, of water and liquids. Um, so I've, I've deeply felt in, in my heart of hearts that I have a deep purpose to protect and provide. And um, this led me in, in the late 1990s to fly to India and um, uh, deeply immerse myself in the teachings of, of Lord Buddha um, in the Mahayana tradition. And your words, um, thought, world, and action um, are mirrored in the ancient Pali texts of the Dhammapada. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow unshakable. So there is a question here. I came back from India after receiving my, my refuge name, Tenzin Palmo, because I felt I could do more good um, living within what I viewed as society than I thought I could do living in the Himalayas in a monastery. And um, the reason I'm crying is because I feel like I've placed my my deep desire and passion to protect and provide humanity over sharing love with another human being. And um, this is the paradox. This is the, the light and shadow that I carry with me and, it, and it's troubling. So if I feel deeply called to protect the planet, is that, is that the goal that's worthy of not engaging with one single human being in love or should the two go hand in hand and possibly um, result in a greater outcome because i've struggled with this for many years that's my question <laughs> well, that's a that's a beautiful question peter it, it kind of brings me to my knees a little bit um it, it has a big answer and some of the answer would would be best served if I could continue this with you in another setting because there's a visual I'd love to share but I don't I have no idea how to do that in, in the technology world um, I, I which I, I'd be more than happy to share it um, it's a huge question that you ask because we in order to live love you know, love, I believe, is a state of being. And, and there is a big calling in the world. You can't, 
you can't selectively live it with one person and not another. And some people are born now, especially in this unprecedented time, I believe some people are born with a big vision to serve the wholeness of life. And it's the, it, it, it's, a, it's a big individual choice um, what to do with that. There are many people who believe that, um, that the purpose of life is just to partner with one, one individual and to live love in that framework. Uh, I think it's an individual choice, what we do with the love that we have and what we do with our purpose. And yet I can say that meeting my husband, we both had both together. And so in this visual that I'd love to share, opposites walk together in everything, including the opposites of, of partnership. You know, in traditional way, you think of it as um, opposite genders, but it's a, it's a partnership. And in the traditional way that my husband was raised in up in Arnhem Land, because he was stolen away from the desert and he was raised and brought into families up there. So he was, he, he was raised by the Awaja people, the Gupapingu people, the, um, it, a lot of people up there. And in that, in that culture, there are two moieties that we, everyone fits into. One is Dua and one is Yiricha. And these are the opposites that everything in nature fit into. And the thing about these things, just the same as me and my husband, we're meant to complement each other, but we do so in the context of the wholeness of the universe. I can choose to have a worldview and a perception of myself as part of my nuclear family, and that's it. Or I can see myself as, as a part of the whole of the universe so that there it is a limitless boundary to what I belong to. And I'd like to think that that and, and I do think that that is my worldview as well as my husband's. And so I remember a time when we were invited to go whale watching on a catamaran with a glass bottom. And it was it was going to be like a honeymoon we never had. Because I told you, our first date was Parliament House. That's no honeymoon, believe me. And we were so excited about it. And as soon as we were invited, we get a phone call from a friend of ours who used to bring groups to the desert. And he says, oh, Uncle Bob, Andrew Harvey is stuck in, in India. He got his wallet pickpocketed and he can't make it to do this teaching. Would you come? And guess what the date was? It was the catamaran date. And Bob and I looked at each other and we just smiled because we both had the same calling. We both had the same heart of service. We were on the same page with that. And you know, what would have happened if, if we weren't? I don't know. That wasn't our reality, but 
because I think we both lived in the in the context of a belief system that is in the hoursness, where our purposes were tied to that, to being of service to all that there is. We complemented each other. Now, this visual that I that I'd love to share with you at some point. I'm sorry to tease you with it. But it's a it's a human, if you can just image it, it's a human being, and there are two snakes that go like this in a helix up the body in a continual cycle. These snakes represent opposite energies. One is dua, one is yiricha. They cross each other at four points of the body that correlate with four areas of life to which we are all responsible. These, oh, Shane, you've got it. There you go. Beautiful. Bob called that the Kanini human. And so those four points where you see those orbs, one at the heart, one at the crown, one at the belly, and one at the earth. Those represent the four Kanini principles or the four areas of life where every single human being is responsible for applying Kanini, which is the sacred responsibility of caring for, of being in service to. And those four areas are the Jukarpa, which is basically creation the sacredness of creation, that energy of the super consciousness that is in all things. That's at the crown. I'm responsible for my relationship with that sacredness of creation. And so is my husband. And as these two snakes, we cross each other there in our responsibility, in our, in our ethos, in our value system, in our belief. And where we cross each other, we boost each other. And it's complementary. At the heart center, that's Kurinpa, which is spirituality. So spirituality could be Buddhism. It could be nature. It could be being of service. It could be farming the earth. But it's a spiritual strengthening of the spirit within, not just the physical. And that's kurinpa. And again, where he and I, we can choose our kurinpa, our, our path. But where we meet in that, we boost each other. And then in the belly, that's walcha, which is family. Now, we're all family to more than we know. Because we're family to the tree, to the air, to the water, to the wind, to the grasshopper to the marsupial, they're all our family because we all carry the same energy of the super consciousness of creation. We're, we're connected to all life. And so, especially here in Australia, when you're born on a certain land area where you're connected and responsible, everything there is family together. And once again, we have a responsibility to that family, both human and not human. And again, when my husband and I individually choose to meet that responsibility, we boost each other. And his joy in that is my joy. My joy in that is his joy. And so that just increases the capacity to serve. 
And then in the land itself, that's Ura, that's Mother Earth. And we each have a responsibility to that as well. Now, along with this is the understanding that every single one of us, including in partnership, is a sovereign individual with personal responsibility for free will in every thought, every word, every action. Now, in the context of Aboriginal way, each of us also knows the given laws from the time of creation, the law of not stealing, not lying, not, not killing or whatever it is, you know, all the way down to meeting my responsibilities as a mother or grandmother. And I also know the consequences if I break those laws, but I still have that right, that free will. And so my husband and I in relationship have a mutual respect for each other's choices in every moment. He has every right to make whatever choice he makes. And as a man, especially, there are certain things that I actually have absolutely no say in because that's men's business that I know nothing about as a woman and vice versa. And so this mutual respect is actually um, one of the things that allows us to be us and to come to each other like, like birds that aren't in a cage with the, the absolute volition for loving or serving in love each other for what can I contribute to rather than what can I get. And so there's no competition. There's no vying for power. There's no power principle at paid. We're, all, we're both in service to those four areas of life. And the love just grows and the joy just grows. That's a whole framework, a cosmology in which to be in relationship that we don't have in the modern context of the world because we don't have an understanding of what it means to be an individual woman and what it means to be an individual man. I'll share one, one more thing that I think is significant here in terms of the free will for every, every thought, every word and every action. And I believe I've shared this with you, Shane, you might've heard this before. After my husband died, I didn't, he, he died at 1.11 in the morning and I, I didn't go to bed that night. I never slept. And so the next night, it was a, it was a big day and the next night, I'd been up for 48 hours or whatever it was, and I was bone tired. And I went to sleep in my bedroom where he died. I didn't know that culturally I wasn't supposed to do that, but I did it. I'm, and I'm glad I did actually. When I woke up in the morning, uh, the birds were chirping and the, the wind chimes were singing out and, and the sun was just bright and shining and outside our bedroom window, there's Uluru larger than life right next to us. And Bob was gone because the family had taken his body away straight away. 
and I started to cry. And I started to sob so deeply that I could barely breathe. And as in a way that I have no words to describe, all of a sudden I heard my husband's voice. And it was as if it was, a, a, it wasn't a voice like I'm sounding now, it was a thought voice, but it was as clear as if, if he was standing right with me. And this is what he said to me. Every time you have a sad thought, you must match it with the thought of gratitude for the time we have together. This is your work. Because in the natural order of things, everything walks together with its opposite. This will give you the internal structure from which you will do your external work of service. So in this Buddhist teaching that says that everything starts with the thoughts, it's the same. And he didn't say don't grieve because grieving is important, but he said match it with an opposite thought because opposites walk together. It's my choice and that's where I have to do the work in my thoughts. And so from that moment on, boy, he didn't let me off the hook for one minute. From that moment on, that as soon as I became aware of it, consciously, that became my work. And I've had years of grief that comes in these waves and every single time that's my work is to match it match a thought of gratitude and every single time i get angry at someone or I feel a betrayal or a frustration what's my work to match it because i don't want to choose to be the embodiment of that that emotion that doesn't feel so good. I want to honor it and acknowledge that it's there, that it's come up, but I match it. And I'll tell you what, that thought of gratitude is so powerful. It is so much more powerful than the sadness. And that's the medicine. And, you know, Grandmother Redleaf also said, and this is what Aboriginal people all know. There is no new medicine. The wisdom is the medicine. It's the medicine for this planet. Mm. It's the medicine for every single one of us and for our children is bringing this wisdom back. But it's not easy. Thank Hard you, work. Barbara, for bringing that wisdom into our circle today. We, we I hope you truly enjoyed this one. You took some insights away, something you can apply for your own life or something you want to share with a friend. If you truly enjoy Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, the episodes I make, and the guests and interview partners I feature, make sure to subscribe, leave a review on the podcast on your favorite app on Spotify or Apple Podcast, share it with a friend, and if you feel inspired, 
make sure to support this podcast. There are plenty of ways to get in touch with me. Leave a monthly recurring financial support on anchor.fm or simply in the show notes of this episode, wherever you're tuning into. This podcast is really just about to get started featuring, showcasing, and gathering some of the most badass planetary change makers that are making this the regenerative decade on planet Earth. Wherever you are in the world, have yourself a stellar day.